It's go time. Welcome to Quick Kicks here on Third Down Gamble. I'm Don Charbon, and today we have a very special guest, the son of Burt Bell, commissioner of the NFL from 1946 to 1959, a former personnel director with the Baltimore Colts, a general manager with the New England Patriots, owned the Charlotte Hornets of the World Football League, went on into television and radio, a career that absolutely amazes, and I'm so thrilled to have Upton Bell as our guest here on Third Down Gamble. Uh, and I, I would say, Don, that I've been very lucky, too, because what I saw is that if one opportunity closed, the other one opened, and, and basically you know, went from the Baltimore Colts in their heyday to the Patriots, which was a bizarre and somewhat disastrous situation, to owning my own team in the World Football League, which which was disastrous but great fun, meeting people like Ted Turner and Arnold Palmer, and and having them be part of the operation, and and seeing what it was like to struggle, and then uh, you know going over to radio and television for the last forty years, and being lucky enough to interview people from all over the world, which is in another collection I have, uh, that includes Stephen Hawking, Henry Kissinger. Hillary Clinton, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, which you can get on YouTube that I did in the White House just before Desert Storm. So, uh, and, and if I might say to your audience, one of the things that I've learned is, first of all, do what you love doing. Money is not going to bring you happiness, believe me. And the second thing is, don't be afraid to take a chance. And I've taken a lot of chances, and I don't regret any of them. Upton, you were born in the mid-1930s, and even by that time, your father and mother were both involved with the National Football League. What was it like being a part of that in your early formative years? Well, I did. Uh, it, it is interesting because, I, again, I consider life a movable feast. I was born in 1937, and actually the first years lived in, in my grandfather's hotel, uh, because there were like 33 football players. My father owned the team, thanks to my mother lending him the money. But basically, we lived in a hotel. I learned how to use the elevator at a young age. Uh, we lived in, in rented houses all over the place, because wherever we went, the team had to go too, different than today. It was a tremendous experience growing up, not only around football players, and around the time of, of the NFL trying to survive. But people would come through our life, whether it was Walter Winchell or Damon Runyon or Bob Hope or, or you name it, as a child growing up. And I just thought that's the way everybody lived and, and found that it is not the way everybody lives. But that, that part really, I think, really helped me in, in not only surviving, in the NFL and then in the World Football League, but in the business you're in, which is survival of the fittest. So those days were really fascinating because you had a firsthand look at, at what not only the game was and how it was being developed, 
but the powerful people in it, the survival of it, uh, and then watching the game as it progressed through to eventually take over from what was the biggest power then, which were the colleges. So it, it was a unique experience in being around all these people to the point of where I really felt, I never felt like a child. I always felt like an adult, uh, but in a very positive way. To me, this, this is the way it was. So your dad, I think he was born into money, if I'm not mistaken. Your mom was on Broadway before uh, I think they crossed paths. Is that right? Her side of it, Burt Bell's so famous, but at that time, Frances Upton was more famous than him. She was picked as one of the most beautiful women in America. Flo Ziegfeld of the Ziegfeld Follies called her the most beautiful legs on Broadway. But how did she start out versus Burt Bell, who was born into a family of money and he made sure he spent all of it, uh, versus <laughs> Francis Upton, who was born, and I'll tell your historians out there, Francis Upton was born into a family. Uh, her father was one of 11 children uh, of, of uh, a man by the name of my great-grandfather, William Cleary Upton. William Cleary Upton was one of the great authors of his day and was thrown out of Ireland because he and a group of Finians tried to blow up a British police station. He came to New York. He wrote a book based upon Uncle Tom's cabin called Uncle Pat's Cabin, and it's written in Gaelic, and it's about uh, the workers, the, the farm workers in Ireland having you know no say and worked on the property, much like African-Americans did in the South. That book, you can still get today, 140 years later on Amazon, Uncle Pat's Cabin, an amazing story. So her father, who never finished high school, spoke six languages, self-taught. In those days, he, he wanted to join the New York police force. Uh, in those days, no Irish need apply. But because he was able to speak so many different languages, they had him in disguise. They hired him and eventually became a lieutenant in the police force. And they hired him to go in to whether it was the Italian section, then, then the mafia was known as the Black Hand, to go in the German section, went to all of these different places in disguise and could speak their language. I remember New York at the turn of the century, people still spoke their own languages, people who came across from all over the world. So basically, she was in high school and was working at Macy's in the perfume counter, and a talent scout came around and uh, said, I represent the Schubert Theater. She said, you're a beautiful young woman. And he said, I, I would really, uh, if you're ever interested in getting in show business, here's my card. Four years later, five years later, she was a star on Broadway and, and went on. I mean, she, she made a lot of money. Remember, taxes were different then and became a big star and actually met my father at a party, I believe, for Charles Lindbergh. And in those days, uh, things were much different than today. Everybody's on Twitter today. Everybody's like we're doing right now on YouTube and Facebook. In those days, you knew people and everybody had connections. So if somebody said, we're having a party in New York for Lindbergh, if you're in show business, you went. If, if you're like Burt Bell in, in, at that time, high society, you went. 
and Saratoga Racetrack, which is still around today, was one of the biggest gambling casinos legal in America. Burt Bell would go there and meet people that eventually were in the NFL. Art Rooney, George Preston Marshall, Tim Mara, uh, you, you name us, actors, actresses. And he once lost $100,000 in one night and won it back all the next night and told me he wanted it in cash. So all of these people actually uh, got to know each other. And basically, he met her at a party. And she was, I think, engaged at the time. And of course, he naturally, he was single and uh, tried to, by today's uh, standards, tried to pick her up. And, and I think she said something that she said later on, I don't date drunks. Uh, and I don't, and I don't date, you know, social mavens. And basically, from then on in, he chased her all over the country. And he basically, and he was much older. I think he was like fourteen years older than my mother. And basically, finally, she said to him, he called her and said, "I'll do anything." Father was uh, a John C. Bell the second in seniority on the Walter Camp Rules Committee, and basically negotiated with Teddy Roosevelt the new rules of college football. Today, it's, it's been proven that John C. Bell Sr. Uh, actually founded the modern NCAA. This whole thing of college football, I can't tell you how big it was. And I know it's big today, but then if you're in pro football, they go like, are you kidding me? Nobody cares. And until the NFL and the Chicago Bears actually signed Fred Grange, who was a national name at Illinois, and took him on a barnstorming tour, nobody about the NFL. But she said to him, listen, stop watching college football. I know your family's big and in it and everything else. And I know you played at the University of Pennsylvania and you're a big star and everything else like that. He said, but where it's at is the pro game. And she started taking him to pro games. And I think that's where the relationship built. And finally, he would be taking her to games at the University of Pennsylvania when they drew in those days, unlike today. The Ivy League, which was a power, drew 60, 70, 80,000 people. And uh, so uh, that's how the relationship built. And then finally, he called her one night with his friends in Atlantic City, New Jersey, from the Knife and Fork Hotel and said, honey. And she said, don't call me honey. He said, honey, I'm here with all my friends, and I want to tell you that if you marry me, I'll never take a drink the rest of my life. And everybody's kind of laughing in the background. And she said something like, I'll give you six months. Let's see. And he never did. He never took a drink. I never saw him ever take a drink at home or anywhere. He just gave it up cold turkey. Amazing. And I think that's what my mother said. I've I asked her many times, I said, why would you give up one of the richest men in America for Bert Bell, whose family had money, but his father essentially said, I love you, Bert, but no more money. And, and she said, because I think I saw character. She said, that, that to me, you know, after living the life she did as, as, as a young actress going all over the country, and, and seeing all the different things that happened, knowing gangsters, knowing people from all walks of life. She had heard every con job in the world. But when he said to her that, 
and followed through with it, I think that's what happened. I think that's what what made her say that, that this man had character. And it's interesting because if you talk to anybody who knew Burt Bell or knew about him, even to today, they'll tell you the one thing that was the really stood out was his character. He told you, this is my word, you had your word. If he told an owner off, he said, it's my word. If he told a player, and he had that, that type of, of relationship with players, owners, writers, media, same thing, no BS. Is it true that your mom, Frances, met Al Capone? She, she met Al Capone, Machine Gun Ned McGurn, and, uh, and she and, and basically her roommate uh, was the famous woman out of, do you remember the movie or does anybody remember the movie? Love Me or Leave Me with Jimmy Cagney and Doris Day. It was about Ruth Edding, who was in the same show with her. Big star, too. And the Ziegfeld Follies then would be as big as anything today. They called it the Follies, but some of the, the greatest musicals ever made were the Ziegfeld Follies. She introduced the song Making Whoopi with Eddie Cantor in the show Whoopi. She knew all of the greats of the time because they all kind of were in it together. But she and Ruth Eddie, and I've told this story many times, but still it's kind of interesting. And I actually put it in my book, is that she and Ruth Edding, uh, Edding had become involved with Mo the Gimp Snyder. And, and Mo the Gimp Snyder was a, a kind of a, he knew Capone, he knew everybody. He was big Chicago guy. And he actually got uh, Ruth Edding going in his different nightclubs. Uh, so they became engaged, but he would have fits of, of anger get mad at her. You've been looking at some other guy, you dame. You know, something like that. So eventually, they both slept on the road with guns under their pillows for fear that he'd break into the room and, you know, they'd have to shoot him. <laughs> what a romance, huh? So she did. She met Capone at a dinner that Edding took her to. And as I've told people many times, uh, they sat with their backs to the door and uh, Capone and his mobsters sat with their backs to the wall. And she finally got the, the hint that somebody's gonna blow them away, they'd be killed first. So, but th that was commonplace then that, well, maybe not commonplace, but people in show business, gangsters, stars, they all mixed. You know, the, not everybody had their product or their own website or all of those things, they just, they just mixed. Everybody knew each other. So she came up in that world. And remember, she was just a kid uh, when she broke onto Broadway. I think she was barely 20. Uh, and she, she grew up pretty fast. But that, that was a world you never see today. When they got secretly married, and it's funny, I found, uh, and I'm still being sent today by historians, I found love letters between the two of them when they were secretly married. Now, if you met my father, the last thing you would think is, although he's very loving with his children, his family, I can't picture this. I said, this, this, this ain't Burt Bell. This got to be Shakespeare writing these letters, these long love letters. Francis, I love you. I miss you. 
I can't wait to see you again. I'm going like, who wrote this for him? But it's in his handwriting. And so what happened was uh, Walter Winchell, who then was more powerful than anything you've seen on CNN or Fox or MSNB or anything. He was, if, if he liked you, you're in. If he didn't, you were, you were in deep trouble. And he would come on and go, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. North and South America and all the ships at sea. Tonight I'm announcing the secret marriage of Francis Upton to Bert Bell. Boom! It's everyone on the front pages. He got the story and broke it. And that's how everybody knew that they had been secretly married. Your dad had owned an NFL team, or maybe was a part owner of a couple of others too, I believe, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, yes? Yes, but but what happened, at that time he didn't own anything. In fact, it's interesting, uh, Dan Daly, uh, who you should get on sometime, who wrote a book called The National Forgotten League, points out that basically, something I didn't know, and I, I'm somewhat of a historian, uh, pointed out that in 1919, uh, when they had the original uh, uh, ownership coming in in the Canton showroom with Jim Thorpe and company, that Burt Bell thought about, he had put together a group that he eventually used when he then bought the Eagles in 1933 with Francis Upton's money, is that basically he thought about joining then, but decided against it because he thought um, uh, maybe the NFL well, it wasn't called the NFL then. It's not going to make it because they had just gotten over the 1919 Black Sox scandal in baseball. So he and his group decided not to do it. Almost 13 years later, they did decide to do it. When he met my mother, then in that year, they got married and and he had decided to buy the Eagles, which he did with with her money. And of course, the famous story about on their way back, from marriage, they they bought the team out of bankruptcy. They were the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets. And they saw a big sign up, the Roosevelt's National Recovery Act with the Eagle on there. And that's, see, th- many people think life is complicated and you sit down like today and teams are going, let's run a contest. And then they come up with some stupid name like the Seattle Kraken for hockey. Are you kidding me? Everybody in Canada must be laughing their fanny off the Seattle Kraken. Then you see something, it strikes you. You don't, you don't call the newspapers or the media. You don't run a long contest. You say, that's it. It's the Philadelphia Eagles. And that's how they were born. How long did he own them? And where did his relationship with the Steelers come into play? Well, actually, what, what happened was, you know, a couple of key things uh, Bert Bell saved the NFL many and many times early on. He and he and a group of owners. I don't want to say it's totally him, but but his influence uh, during the Second World War. Well, he he bought into the Steelers. He decided to sell the Eagles, and then he and Art Rooney, who were great friends, they had come in together in 1935. Then the Steelers were called the Pittsburgh Pirates, like the baseball team. They were not originally called the Steelers. And so basically, he's decided to sell the Eagles and become equal partners with Art Rooney and the Steelers and be their coach for about 10 minutes. So Rooney got smart and said, you know, Bert, you're a great executive, brilliant guy. You ain't a coach, although he had been a coach in college. So 
he took over, he and Rooney, during the war years. Well, just before the war. But interesting enough, there is a book also out on during the war, the NFL had talked about shutting down. And he got up at the league meeting and said, gentlemen, if you shut down today, you'll never open again. He said, not only that, on, on the horizon, there's a league uh, that's called the All-America League that I think will come up and compete and we will be gone. So by just a couple of votes, he talked the owners out of closing the league down. And there's a book written on it called The Steagles, which is what happened to survive the Eagles and Steelers merged and became the Steagles. Very famous book by a writer uh, out of Washington. It sold the Eagles, he and Mooney are equal partners. They survived during the war, they merged twice. They merged with the Eagles and then the Steelers merged with the Pitt. They called them the Pitt uh, Cardinals, the Chicago Cardinals, not the Bears. So all during that period, you know, it was day to day. You know, it's, it's survival, even getting meal money, players surviving. It's, it's a miracle that people will really look back from today where everything is over in 10 seconds. Hi, hello, well, let me tell you about this. NFL Network, the, the NFL, all of the Hall of Fame has done a great job uh, with, with the history of the league. Basically, it's never about yesterday, unlike baseball. It's what's going on today. But many times the NFL came with, within just a hair of going out of business. Which is something we've experienced here with the Canadian Football League as well. Well, that's right. Yeah, no, you, 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 know, you know that. And that's how Burt Bell came up with, I think, the most brilliant idea in sports. And I'm saying that's 60 years removed. Longer, the, the NFL draft, which every league then adopted. He saw that in 1935, that everybody except the Giants and the Packers and, and the Bears were losing money. And, and I've told other people who have interviewed me that what they don't realize is that basically 25 teams went out of business from the founding in 1920 to 1935. So it was a real gamble. And that's why his father, who at the time was the attorney general of Pennsylvania, besides owning the rich Carlton in Philadelphia, said to him, Bert, no more money. No, no. He said, uh, your league is going out of business. And you want me to put up money for a league that isn't going to last. Well, shows you what his father knew. And it shows you the gamble that people took then the Maras, the Roonies, the Hallises, uh, like them or not, even George Marshall, who today is in ill repute everywhere because of his stance on race. If you wanted to make a really good movie today, and everything's out there, Netflix, you name it, and I've got every one of them. If you made a movie, and George Clooney came the closest to it in, in uh, Leatherheads, but it didn't quite do it. I, I, I many times thought about trying to get old Clooney and say, you really want to make a film about what it was like, slapstack, crazy, survival. These people one day, can we pay the food bill? Like in Pittsburgh, when the grocer said, no more food for the Steelers until you pay me off. They had to finally trade a player 
to get enough money to pay the food bill. There is a real great story. And, and you know what? You know it in Canada uh, with your league surviving through thick and thin competition with the NFL players jumping back and forth. The whole idea is, well, they say desperate times calls for desperate men and women, is that basically you have to have courage and you got to find the money to survive. That is really the story of the NFL, which I don't think has really been told yet, even on the NFL network. How did they survive? That's the story. Your dad becomes commissioner of the NFL, and during his tenure, television comes into uh, the world. What was his role in all of that in getting NFL coverage? Well, he, see, again, back, life is too a lot of luck. In 1935, when his team was playing in New York uh, against the Brooklyn Dodgers, again, there was a Brooklyn Dodgers football team owned by Dan Topping, who uh, uh, basically then went on to own the New York Yankees. And uh, as an experiment, NBC, uh, the World's Fair was in New York, and they wanted something to get people's attention. So they put up these little boxes around the World's Fair, and they the first televised game was between my father's team and the Brooklyn Dodgers, the Philadelphia Eagles. And he saw them, basically, and one thing about Burt Bell, his brilliance was he could see way into the future. He saw what could happen, the explosion of the game. From then on in, uh, all of that, information, all that input that kind of he saw that day, he's really, I know they talk about Pete Rosell and I have great respect for Pete and he took it another step, but Burt Bell is really not only the father of the modern draft, but Burt Bell is also the father of modern television. He understood it. He knew how to sell it. In fact, he was the one that eventually set up a national game way before ABC's uh, Monday Night Football back in 1970. It was the NFL game of the week on the Dumont Network, Saturday night, must-see TV, black and white football, and and would have continued if it wasn't for the colleges objecting and he agreed to stop it. If not, it would the explosion would have been much faster. And, and of course, the explosion, again, he saw television, he saw the draft, he invented sudden death, lived long enough to see it. And that sudden death, that game, that stadium, I was there, nothing like it. It, it, you know, would, be a, it would be like being at the Rome Coliseum uh, when the games were taking place. It was, it, it was just a monumental event that most people did not know the rule or did not know anything about sudden death. But that game then propelled the NFL. And from then on in, even though some people say, well, that isn't the total story. You're referring to the 1958 NFL championship game that went into overtime between the Colts and the Giants, often called the uh, greatest game ever played. It had America caught up in this whole thing. And, and remember that they had lost the feed as they were going to sudden death and, and they had to stall it off for a while to get the, to get the picture back for the game to continue. The, the drama, you had to be there for the drama of that. 
in in the you know the the fading sunlight, the the dark night, the old dusty field of Yankee Stadium, and to watch these two teams, uh, even though today, if if you watch it, the players are bigger, quicker, stronger, faster. But what what you saw that day was almost like a classical Shakespeare play with with an unbelievable ending. That was the last dream that was fulfilled that he had. He had already taken care of the NFL, AFL, All-America Conference merger. He had brought television into it. He brought the draft into it. He brought the waiver wire into it. He fought gambling, which today now everybody's a gambling partner because he can make more money. He did all of that. But his final masterpiece was sudden death. And uh, that October, following that, he was dead. And he said to Raymond Berry, the famous player, after the game, he saw him outside the locker room. He said, you know, Raymond, I never thought I'd live to see this. And it was prophetic because he was dead nine months later. I think he even knew I always say this. I think he even knew he was going to die and it was going to be soon. And I've told people, sad for me, but he got his wish because the day he died, he was watching the two teams he used to own, the Steelers and the Eagles, playing in the stadium, Franklin Field, where he became famous as a quarterback and eventually took his team to the Rose Bowl in 1917 through the first pass in Rose Bowl history in the last two minutes as Norm Van Brocklin throws a touchdown pass to Tommy McDonald. And as he crosses the field goal, uh, crosses the line, Burt Bell drops dead in the stands. That was his ending. And Red Smith said, if anybody had the greatest way to go out, it had to be Burt Bell. That was his life. Dramatic from the very beginning to the very end. You were a young man when that happened, though. Yeah, it was a real shock. Yeah, I was. I, and I write in my book that I was just 21. When you're 21 then, even though I was an adult, you're still a boy. I was on the other side of the field. Somebody said, there's somebody down over. One of the things that he did, uh, unlike other commissioners, he had a box, but he never sat in it. And what he would do is he'd move around the stadium during a game and talk to the fans. What do you like? What don't you like? He had that day before the game, very prophetic, uh, and speaking to Harold Weissman, who was a, a writer for the, one of the big New York papers. And he was standing there with Art Rooney, his former partner. And he said, Harold, he said, you know what? I'll only be happy when every team is making money. And he said, I worry about the have-nots. I worry about the Art Rooney's. They're years removed from their Super Bowl and their dominance like we see today. And he said, uh, you know, I, I worry about all of that. And then finally, uh, ironically, my babysitter, a guy by the name of Bull Lipsky, who was the starting offensive center for the team, and they would exchange each week, a one player got an extra five bucks to be my and my brother and sister's babysitter. Bull came up to my father and he said, Bert, I'm broke. I have no money. And he said, can you help me? 
and it was the last great act that I ever saw. And I knew this was a Burt Bell that I loved. In those days, there were no credit cards. And so he opened the money clip, which I have today because I sold it off his body when he died. And he handed him everything in the money clip. I don't know, a couple hundred, two, three hundred dollars. And he said, Bull, here you go. Come by and see me tomorrow and I'll take care of you. That's the last act the son saw his father make, which is still with me today after all of these years. That was his last act that his son saw. And when I saw that person down over on the other side, somebody yelled out, I think it's Burt Bell. And I jumped out of the stands and actually ran onto the field. I didn't realize I was running on the field to play to cut across and to get up to see if I could get with him. When I got there, ironically, they had gone to the Steelers bench to get oxygen to see if they could save him. And I had to laugh in some ways. So they tried the oxygen and it didn't work. Whether it would have saved him on somebody said, same old Steelers, just when you need them, nothing works. <laughs> the, the irony of, of the whole thing. And, and he, was, he was dead. The hospital was just a few, few blocks from there. And we rode in the ambulance up. But the other irony of the day is Art Rooney, his partner, was in such a state of shock. You can walk out of Franklin Field and walk up about two or three blocks to the hospital. Rooney was in such shock, he didn't realize he was walking on the trolley tracks and came within inches of dying that day. Now, a lot of people don't know that story. So somebody said, we could have lost two of the greats in one day. Rooney just missed by inches of being hit. And that would have been, Art Rooney would have died on his way to see his former partner, who he had just talked to before the game. And by the time he got up there, of course, my father was dead. One of the things I've made sure of, and I still have it, and it's in this collection, when they pull the curtain across and they have the family in there, they, you know, they kind of tell you, don't touch anything. And, and there were press outside. I can't tell you what it was like. And I'm really afraid they're going to, uh, this is such a big story. And so, you know, shocking that they, I was afraid they're going to pull it, the curtain across and expose myself and my brother and sister and, and the body. So what I did is I waited till the doctors left the room and I went into his pocket and I found that money clip that's got all of our names on it. And, and it was funny, my mother put on a, to Bert from, from Upton, Bert and, and, and Janie, this is where we wanna be, it's a joke. And so I got that and then I took his belt off and I hid both of them and the doctors came back because they wheel you out and, that, and that's it. They never knew I have that. And that's in the Upton Bell collection. That's my final memory. So he came into the world Dramatic, and he went out that way. And you know what? Not good for his children, but what a great way to go. At the time he leaves, the 1960s are just about upon us, and there's another rival league that's starting to show up, the American Football League. Right. It is, and you know what? You, you ought to get as a guest on your show, 
a, a person that I was in in the league with, uh, in the World Football League with briefly, and now he's one of Hollywood's most famous producers. His name is Frank Pace, and he co-wrote a book, Frank Pace and Billy O'Connor, called Lamar's Gamble, the true story behind the AFL-NFL merger. Get him on. Uh, uh, because what basically happened, and in the book, even though it's ri written somewhat satirically, in, in their book, they, my father is in the book a lot. And the reason that he's in the book is that summer of 59, before he died, uh, he got a call from his former quarterback, Davey O'Brien, who was a quarterback at the Eagles. And the first quarterback that he went, this is again how far he was ahead of things, uh, he was, I think, the Heisman Trophy winner. And he insured him for $100,000 for Lloyds of London for injury. He was great. He retired very, very young. And the reason he did is he joined the FBI. And by the way, going all the way back to my father's first year, 1946, when the scandal, gambling scandal broke. And, and this is one of the reasons why uh, Frank Filchak ended up in Canada in the Canadian Football League. My father had discovered what had happened the night of the draft with the district attorney. They called both he and Merrill Hapes into the league, into the, the uh, DA's office, and grilled them about, did they take a bribe? They said no, but they didn't, they didn't report it. But basically... Uh, what he did is he then called Davey O'Brien, who was then in the FBI and was considered the best pistol shot in America working for J. Edgar Hoover. And he said, I need ex-FBI men in each city, he said, to follow players and gamblers to make sure this never happens again. Well, now we go 13 years later, the summer uh, of 1959, and he gets a call from Davey O'Brien. He said, Lamar Hunt has asked me to call you and see if he can set up a meeting he would like to talk about uh, another league. Now, at that time, Lamar had tried to buy a team in the NFL, the Cardinals. And my father had told him that basically not all the teams are in the black yet. I need to get the league totally healthy. If you're willing to wait, he said, you know, sooner or later it'll happen. Well, he didn't. He was young. He was, you know, 27 years old. Uh, you know, multimillionaire. His father was H.L. Hunt, the oil billionaire. A series of meetings between Davey O'Brien and my father that summer. And then eventually Lamar Hunt led to the whole idea that Hunt was going to go ahead. And my father said, well, let me, you know, my father was a full-time lobbyist by then. Let me go to Congress and announce it with your permission. And I think that Lamar was hoping there would someday be a championship game between the both of them. And I, I have a feeling, too, uh, because he liked Hunt. Hunt was very, very sharp. And uh, Davey O'Brien was his great friend, the go-between. I have a feeling that Burt Bell lived he would have been able to deal with the owners. You know, that whole attitude was, we're big now, we don't need them. But my father never saw it that way. And I think if he had lived, big if, that you would have seen something like uh, the two links playing separately and, an, and a championship game, which happened then like 20 years later.
and and this well it wasn't originally called the Super Bowl, but that whole summer, again the big diff, the big ifs of life that people have to understand is if Burt Bell lives, if Lamar Hunt gets the Cardinals, and he's going to have to move them because they eventually go to St. Louis, and then to L.A. and everywhere else. Uh, since then, I think it would have been completely different, but he didn't. Again, that's fate. He drops dead, and uh, Hunt goes ahead with their leg, and the rest is history. But you have to know which is important. I don't think people know enough. You have to know the backstory. And Frank and this and Billy O'Connor write a tremendous book on it. And again, they call it faction because you you really have to be careful about suits and stuff like that. But I will tell you, everything in there is true, including my father, including my dealings with Carol Rosenblum, who was, my father got to be the owner of the Colts. And uh, that's where I worked and, and made my career, my early career. Well, what was it like working for the Colts at that time? Amazing. There'll never be another love affair like that. Maybe, maybe the closest was uh, maybe Marilyn Monroe and JFK, something like that. Uh, a real love affair in a, in a town that we all is midway between New York and Washington, and people said had an inferiority complex, everything else like that. But you get eight or 10,000 every day for practice at training camp. Every player, everybody in town knew the players. They were close to them. You could go into a bar and drink with somebody without worrying about what's going to happen. Uh, in fact, Barry Levinson, the famous director, uh, used to come to practice all the time. The, the famous movie called Diner, I don't know whether you've ever seen it, is all about the Colts in that time. I used to go to the, I used to go to the Fell Street Diner all the time, two, three, or four o'clock in the morning. I wasn't married at the time. And those stories are true. People get married, and, and, and if the bride doesn't know 10 Colt questions, the marriage is off. Now, you might laugh at that, but, but the relationship, the players, and there were great characters. Gino Marchetti, Hall of Fame. Raymond Berry, Hall of Fame. John Unitas, a $7 a week quarterback from the Bloomfield Rams that comes there and does it. Art Donovan could have run for the mayor of Baltimore. Lenny Moore, still today in my mind, one of the great 10 or 20 backs in NFL history. All of these characters on this Don the Reverend Shinnick, uh, Samp Samples, you know, all, all of these people. In fact, Jerry Richardson, who ended up owning, you know, the, the Charlotte team in the NFL and eventually had to, uh, you know, sell it because of, of his uh, transgressions. Jerry Richardson, the owner of, of the Carolina Panthers, was the backup to Raymond Berry on those championship teams. Alan the Horse Amici, he would play opera out his window. All of these great characters that were involved in the town and the closeness of the town to the people. It'll never, it, it, it will never happen again. There never, never can be that, that closeness, that love of, of players and the fans. I mean, they changed church times on Sundays to make the Colts be able to go on. In those days, the games weren't playing until two o'clock. 
and all the churches said, you have to be out by 12 so you can get to the Colts game. It was an era that it'll never come back. And, and, you know, it's funny because the way I look at it is I was lucky enough to live at that time. I don't want to go back to it. It's in my memory, but I just wish people, I mean, there are a few teams that, that are in love, but not like that. In fact, when Big Daddy Lipscomb died and people will never, that mystery has never been solved. I always claimed it was a murder and other, there are other versions of it. 10,000 people, think about that. 10,000 people showed up for the wake. They had to close the door. And many of the players stayed there and they lived. And of course they had Rosenblum, uh, a very controversial owner. He was a former player at Penn that my father coached and went to him when the time came to bring them back in 1953. Great friends with the Kennedys, into the movies, into a lot of things, and a lot of people accuse him of gambling, and I believe he did. But as I told other people, uh, he even used me at times as a beard uh, when he was first cheating on his wife with Georgia Rosenblum, Frontieri, who ended up being the owner of the Rams. I was the one that would pick her up at the airport and bring her back to the hotel and then leave and whatever they did, they did. But it was, it had everything. Colorful, controversial owner, I believe belongs in the Hall of Fame, except for the gambling thing, which is a big thing. Of course, today, he'd probably be celebrated what the teams are doing, which I don't like, by the way. I do not like it at all. All those years protecting the NFL from gambling, Pete, my father, Tagliabue, all of them. And now DraftKings is bigger than any king. So anyway, that town was, I would say, Thornton Wilder's famous play called Our Town. That was Baltimore. You had fascinating coaches. You had Weeb Eubanks. You had Don Shula. Chuck Noll, forget, don't forget either. In fact, I, I worked under all three, and I actually picked up Chuck Noll when he came to the airport when we had just hired him. And, and, and in the end, actually called the Roonies and, and recommended him as their coach. And I'm sure they talked to a lot of other people. Noll was absolutely brilliant, intelligent, could be anything. You know, he was the first one to, to say to me, he said, Upton, I said, well, we've got Unitas, we've got Raymond Berry, we've got Lenny Moore, we've got Alan Orange. No, we didn't have Meech. He was gone by then. And he said, Upton, in the big games, defense always wins. Your career path takes you to the Patriots. At that time, I believe they were called the Boston Patriots. The name, the name changed. And when I saw BS Patriots, uh, I said, no way. The name change suggestion was to go from Boston to Bay State Patriots. It was ridiculous. So I finally convinced the owner. Um, that's my legacy here is I, I convinced them to change the New England Patriots, saying we're in the middle of a 6-8 area. Uh, we're no longer in Boston. We're midway between Boston and Providence. So let's do it. But the big thing was, so the newspapers at that time didn't keep going BS Patriots and making fun of them. So that's what happened here. It was the wrong time for me. And I have told other people this. Youth is entitled to their mistakes. And up to that point, I'd had a great career and a meteoric rise. 
And like anybody, 32, 33, you believe that you can do anything. But there are things you can't do. And you can't uh, deal with like 20 owners that are fighting among each other and all of the things that go with it. The idea that you were hired to find a new coach eventually. And, and then when the time came, they stopped me from doing it. It's a learning lesson. It's a great learning lesson, and that's basically to say, know where you can't go, and know sometimes when it's better to turn something down than to take it. I don't regret it because in the end, I was able to hire four people that all went on to become either general managers or directors of player personnel. We were able to draft really good players. And I think I left it in pretty good shape. I mean, we, we, we lost the second year, but the controversy between myself and the head coach, if you look at it, it never was going to work anyway. Because I didn't think, no knock against him, I just didn't think he was the answer for the future. And I was right. But in being right, I'm gone. Understandable, but that's the way it is. That's the gamble you take. And... That's what it was. So that opens a door up for you to go into media. No, no. After that, it opens the door for me to lose more money. The WFL. <laughs> Are you kidding? The incredible World Football League. Two years of hijinks the likes no league has ever seen. Although I will say this. Again, it was the experience. I put my own money up. Uh, I got Arnold Palmer to be the first person to invest in the team. I got Ted Turner to do us on a network, starting with his own station there. I met some of the most interesting people. I got fleeced by a, by a guy that pretended he had a lot of money and ended up that he was in the witness protection program and tried to commit suicide off the Veronzano Bridge. I mean, what, where else can you find this, including one of my players, George Sauer from the original New York Jets. Uh, I get a call from, I think, the FBI one day in the middle of this whole controversy and whether the lake survived or not. And he said, we're not sure, but the report is that he's hiding Patty Hearst. <laughs> what, what, what more could you do? So, so, when, so when, when it went down, I mean, we had one of the best teams in the league and most of our players were signed in the NFL. And all my coaches were, including Lindy Infante, uh, who ended up being the head coach of the Green Bay Packers. It was a situation of, it was a great experience. It cost me my money, but I got what I wanted. I wanted to own a team. I wanted to run a team. It didn't last long, but, but basically, again, you know, there, there are certain gambles that you take in life. If you're, if you're looking to make a lot of money, find something else. But on the other hand, I always stick to this. There are two things in, let's say, the NFL and basically in life. Either you're an owner or you're a renter. I was a renter, and everybody else is if you're not an owner. But the renter got a chance to be the owner and then went back to being the renter. <laughs> the team you owned was the Charlotte Hornets, and I believe they were in New York originally. Is that correct? Yep. Took him from New York, uh, made, made a deal with Howard Baldwin, one of the, uh, and another interesting guest you should have on. Uh, Howard Baldwin was one, 
he was one of the co-founders of the World Hockey Association and then uh, became part of the NHL. And then he was one of the co-founders of the World Football League. And it had the original team here in Boston, then moved it to New York. And then I made a deal with him and the owner, Bob Smirts, who owned the Celtics at the time, but was going, well, he was, I think he was near bankruptcy, made a deal, uh, took the team from New York to Charlotte. I knew Charlotte was going to be an NFL city. I knew way ahead of everybody because as a scout with the Colts, I used to come through that area all the time. And I said, it's perfect. Far enough away from Atlanta that you're not going to be dominated by that. And, and it's got North and South Carolina in huge areas. I got the right area, just the wrong time. But that's, again, what it was. But I took it from there. We took it down there. Opening game, sell out. Second week, sell out. And, and then uh, what we had to deal with later on was a team from Florida called the Florida Blazers that basically was owned by Rami Loud, who used to work for me here, that was out of money. And the judge calls me before the game and basically said, uh, they're not coming up unless you pay their way up and pay their game checks. So I did it. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? The game sold out? And you're going to announce to the fans they are not going to show how bad would it be in a league that already had problems. So I paid their way up, gave them their game checks, and they beat us. <laughs> that wasn't very polite. <laughs> no, well, that's the way it is. It's only money. True. I guess you could probably tell at some point during your ownership that this league was what was the atmosphere like what, when you were talking with other owners? They, were you guys scrambling all the time? Were you kind of... We, we weren't. We, we, we were solid. I mean, we, we had to, to, to scramble for the second year and got the North Carolina National Bank to put up the money uh, and eventually got enough investors uh, to do it. But I knew going in, now this wasn't a case of naive Upton Bell. I knew going in that the league really had problems. But I thought... The, the old AFL had a lot of problems, but they had really fairly rich owners. But I saw, you know, the opportunity, if nothing else, that maybe the NFL would eventually, you had Memphis, John Bassett had signed Zonka Kick and Moorfield. We were raiding the NFL for players. I thought if we can get through a couple of years, we might make it to a point where either the NFL would take in a couple of teams or, or you know, your, your league would survive to a degree. The thing was, what Gary Davidson and what they had done was a mistake. He just wanted to sell franchises and get money into the, to the treasury and, and wasn't careful enough of the people that he let in. There were some, like us and like Bassett and a few other people, that did, but you, you could see where the problems were. Now, they really screwed up on in, in one thing. In the second year, there was an opportunity that we had a talk to Joe Namus, I think his name, Jimmy Walsh, talked to Joe Namus attorney in New York with the idea that we could get a national contract. We had one in the beginning, but they dropped us. That the whole idea is everybody chip in, we'd sign Namath, we'd put him, either bring a franchise back to New York or, or send him to Chicago where a new franchise had come up, the Chicago win. Uh, which is where Frank Pace, who I've recommended to you, was working at the time. And uh, what happened is it showed the greedy side of owners. 
with basically a deal, even to the point of where we kind of agreed privately, nobody ever hit Namath in the knees. You know, if you're rushing the pass, you just run right by. And so um, basically got down to a vote and two or three owners said, well, I don't want to give up all that money in Namath. And I said, you don't want to give up the Namath, but you're going to be giving up your league. But they didn't listen. And, and that's what really happened. So the league eventually went under. Ironically, again, back to irony, my father died at Franklin Field. And I was thinking of this that night. My team died there, too. It was the last game we ever played in a driving rainstorm. Nobody in the stands. You could hear the squish, squish, squish of the, of, of, of the, uh, of the cleats. Well, not cleats, but shoes. And there was a strike on by the electrical workers or whatever it was. And they surround the stadium so nobody could go in. So I said, you know what? There are two deaths now in the Bell family. Bert Sr. and his son Upton. Bye-bye. Through that, a lot of great life experiences, though, correct? Yes. Oh. So from there, where do you go? What happens after the WFL folds its doors? Well, I usually hitchbike back home and then, <laughs> and then come back to Boston. And uh, right away, I had a lot of people who wanted me to do radio and television. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll give it a whirl and see what it was like. And that was 40 years ago. And, and I was able to do, to do everything I wanted to do. I did football. I sat in and did the Celtics games when Tommy Heinsohn was missing. I did one of the most successful uh, TV shows called Sports Beat that was up on the satellite back in the 80s and 90s. I did Calling All Sports. I did every sport practically, even did occasionally some color on hockey. Not that I knew what I was talking about, but... But I did that and then finally decided that what I'm most proud of in my career, I decided to give up the money and leave sports and go into regular broadcasting where I could interview people from all over the world. It was a big gamble. People told me not to do it. And uh, I did it anyway. And basically for three out of the first five years, my show was named uh, by the Associated Press as the best show in a middle market. In, the, in New England. And, and that brought me into a world of that I, and I always believe in going to the next world and finding out what it's like. And so that, that brought me into the world of, of uh, people from all over. In fact, in my other collection, 500 authors, every one of them inscribed, many of their interviews there, but, but I got a chance, as I said, to talk to the president in the White House for TV, Henry Kissinger, Bill Clinton, one that, one that I'm really proud of, Stephen Hawking on the universe and black holes. You, you name anybody on there, Pulitzer Prize winners, Nobel Prize winners. And I was able to see and prove that I could leave sports and do the interviews that I always wanted to do with, with you name it. Ironically, too, Going back to the to the Colts, it placed me because I scouted all those years outside of Selma the day of of the beatings on the bridge in Selma, and also I was in uh, Memphis the day that Martin Luther King was murdered. All those life experiences that came originally from sports 
than I used when I left it and went into other things. Race in America, sexuality in America, a Doris Kearns Goodwin, our book on Lincoln, Stephen Hawking on black holes and, and the universe, Sir Edmund Hillary on what it was really like to climb the Himalayas and finally conquer uh, that, that great mountain. Uh, just so many highs in it with people that gave me a totally different perspective on life. And, and I, I've never really gone back. I mean, I'll do sports. Somebody asked me to do something. But basically, I've left that world and gone to another world. And that's the way I see life. You've got to be willing to move on if you want to grow. You've mentioned in past uh, podcasts that the NFL draft is probably about the second biggest television event next to the Super Bowl. PBS had the very first draft on television. Is that right? It was ours. It was, uh, it was, and actually, it was so successful over two days. It was myself and a rotating group of sports writers and announcers from Boston. It was so well done that Kurt Gowdy Jr., who was the producer of it, ended up getting the number one job at NBC on that tape and what, and, and what he did. Uh, yeah, there, there are many firsts that I was lucky enough to be involved with and do. So what I've always been trying to look for is something different that you can do that will expand your universe, but also expand the listeners or the viewees world. And, and basically, the best piece of advice I, I got when I left sports to go to interview different people that I've told you about is, person from the industry said, Upton, the one thing you need to do, know your material, understand the subject, ask the question, and get out of the way. Don't put your ego in. I mean, you can be outgoing, you can do all of those things, but, but basically stay out of the way. They're the story, not you. And what I do find is a lot of today through ESPN or the networks of CNN, what I find out is that the hosts think they're the story. And, and, and some of them are great, but the story is the person. And I think we've lost that in a celebrity type of thing. Even somebody was saying the other day, their great concern about players, let's just take NFL players, but any place, NBA, hockey, some of them, if you ask them privately, would they be more concerned about their performance on the field, on the court, on the ice, or would they be more concerned about their reaction on Twitter? And almost 50% said, I'm not sure. That tells you something. Look at it. I mean, the athletes are, are 100% better. I, I mean, when I went to my first training camp, First year, my father was commissioner. You know, you had the monsters of the midway, the, the Chicago Bears, and you had, you know, you had Sid Luckman. There's a great book on his life out too, called Tough Luck. And a lot of people don't know, by the way, that his father was in jail for murder at the time. Today, it'd be all over the place. But you look at them: Sid Luckman, George McAfee, Bulldog Turner. I mean, all of these great names before them: Barko Nagurski. As great as they were today, these, these guys are miles ahead of them, faster, quicker, maybe smarter, maybe. 
uh, the coaching is different. But my concern would be, and probably most people not my age, what are they saying on their Twitter account? I don't really care what they say on their Twitter account. Uh, I understand that they need to promote themselves. Uh, that's a way to make more money, although most guys now, I mean, Steph Curry signs four years at 50 million, and good for them, they get whatever they want. But where is the game going? Where are any of these games going? They're certainly better technically, and the players are bigger, stronger, quicker. But I thought that kind of, to me, was, I won't say a warning, because most of the people today who play fantasy football and, and actually are, are going to bet with DraftKings, I mean, they could care less what I have to say. But you should listen when your performer is out there and is worried as much about his or her accounts and what their social media is saying about what they're doing on the field. A lot of them will go, well, no, I caught four passes today, two for touchdowns. Whoops. Let me get back to the locker room and get on, get on my phone and see what people think. When you think of the Canadian Football League as it starts its 2021 season, what comes to mind? I've always liked the idea. It's like cutting through a lot of BS in life. You got three downs, two of them, you better do something because there ain't going to be any fourth down. And, and in many ways, I like that concept. There's certain things maybe uh, the American audience doesn't like. I've always loved that league. I'm going all the way back to one of the few people that defied my father with the Philadelphia Eagles and his name was Bud Grant. He did not like the reserve clause. He did not like what the NFL still has today. They always have the option unless they give it up. Bud Grant went to Canada. Great coach, Hall of Fame coach. I, I think of all of the NFL players that either went to Canada or all the players that were developed in Canada and the league itself. And, and when my father was commissioner, there was a real war back and forth. I think there was the Radovich case. There were other ones. Uh, I always came to Canada to scout a lot of their players. Went to Grey Cups, loved guys on horses riding through the lobby. I'm saying, you've got to be kidding me. This is a wild, wild west. Or, or, or Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, you know, coming on the field dressed in, in a big fur coat. To me, the, the Canadian Football League was the wild, wild west. And I liked that. I liked the attitude. I liked the little towns as well as the big cities that had teams. Uh, and I still like it today. I watch it when, it when it's on ESPN. And it gave Doug Flutie a second life. How many people did it give a second life to? Uh, a lot of them. And I think one of the reasons why, particularly with quarterbacks, is you only have two down to make the first down. And, and that makes you really have to think about how you want to run your offense. I really do like it, always have, and I'm not just saying it because of your show. I liked it. And as a kid, I knew it. Again, you're asking me to go back to basically all of my experiences as a young boy. And I remember listening to my father on the phone all the time talking about this and talking about that, the Canadian Football League. That was a really big thing between the two leagues. One of the things that I do think is that the, the NFL – who's the cookie monster of sports, would basically, I think, like to put a team in either Montreal or Toronto. The Bills 
uh, have, have something going on now. I think they're looking at, at the city putting up something like near a billion dollars for a stadium. They've always been threatening to play a, a game across the border and do this and do that. But I think it eventually will come that there will be a Canadian team in the NFL. Uh, I don't know how, how the Canadian Football League will f- feel about that, whether they think it might kill their sport. I don't really think so. I could be wrong. You at one time had two baseball teams and with the Expos. I didn't like that whole thing and, and them leaving. When you look at it, I think that's the one thing that the Canadian Football League is going to have to face. Do you, how do you continue or how do you feel about an NFL team coming in there? Maybe it'll never happen, but I think it's going to. The one hurdle I've always felt is that the NFL requires ownership, not from a corporation, but from a family. And I'm just wondering who has that kind of wherewithal to spend that kind of capital and probably have to build a new stadium to put one in Toronto. If the NFL can invent something, they will invent something. There are ways to get around it. The NFL is definitely someday going to be in England. I mean, they're priming that. I think they'll be in Germany. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying how much success they'll have, by the way. I even think the day will be when they will be in China. Uh, that I mean, they, they, are, they are the great expansionist team. You know, they're, they're, they're like America was. You know, we don't, we don't care what happens to Native Americans. We're sweeping our way all the way to the coast. Manifest destiny. That's what the NFL is about. Manifest destiny, get out of my way. We're, we're going to figure out a way. So if, if that's the only uh, a, a problem of finding a family that has a, enough money, so they could find a family that could connect with another family and put it together. Like John Bassett, who owned a team in our league, uh, he was married to the heir of the Carling Brewing. Carling Brewing Company and two or three other major companies that family own they can do it. Believe me. Where do people find your records? I know that you have some of your archives now stored at the university. If you, if you get, get my book, which is still popular three years later, and really want to know the whole story, including a couple of chapters on the World Football League that you'll laugh your fanny off at, it's called Present at the Creation, My Life in the NFL and the Rise of America's Game. You can't even paperback now. You'll love it. And it looks at, at everything. The, the other thing is two collections, but one's really important where your interview will eventually be. Is the Upton Bell Collection at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. You go online and, and you can see it. And what it really is, is the history of college and pro football from the 1885 to today. It's not boring. It's, it's, it's got 140 some artifacts. In this big case that you'll see when you go on there, you'll see my father's 1917 drop kicking trophy. He was the champion, silver. I've been offered a fortune for that. You'll see two Chicago Bears solid gold footballs from 1946 from George Hallis. You'll see my Super Bowl ring, uh, and the original and the reason why so many collectors wanted it, it's from the last Baltimore Colt team that no longer exists. 
our championship in 1970 in the Super Bowl. And it's when rings weren't gaudy like today. And you, you will see a World Football League, original football. You'll see all sorts of things, gold medallions, all of them uh, that I'd say the collection would be worth a fortune. And it's behind glass. But then there are different sections of this collection that you can go online and see. For instance, they have found letters between my great-grandfather and Abraham Lincoln uh, and that whole other side of my family. You have the Francis Upton side, the Burt Bell side. His father married the congressman uh, who was one of Abraham Lincoln's best friend and helped push through the purchase of Alaska, Leonard Myers. And uh, you'll see the pictures and the letters uh, in there. So there, there is all sorts of things. There, there are bats in there signed by Joe DiMaggio of the New York Yankees, Ted Williams. So from every sport, there's, there's something in there. But then, then there are articles, there are interviews. There are all of that history in there that people might want to see. Well, once that place opens up, I've had historians already that want to go up there and see it. And as I told you before the interview, what is interesting about the DuBose Library, which goes 26 floors uh, on, on the campus of UMass, is some of the great collections in the world, like Mark McCormick, the famous agent, all of his papers are there. They just got all the papers. I happen to be lucky enough to meet him. Uh, Daniel Ellsberg, the Pentagon Papers are all there. So it is a real historic, great place. And you should bring your radio show there someday and really have some fun. Get the station to pay some money. Send you up there. Well, you're looking at the owner right now, and <laughs> I don't know if it's in the budget. <laughs> uh, well, listen, I can tell you where to get the money. <laughs> I'll at least pay for the bus fare. Yeah, that, that's a bus ride I'm going to look forward to. <laughs> oh, listen, I've done it. You can do it. <laughs> Is there anything else you want the, the listeners to know? I, I, would, I would say, again, that if I could tell you whatever age you are, is to basically go out and do what you love doing in life. When the end comes to your life, you're not going to ask yourself how famous I was or how much money I made. You're going to ask yourself, I guarantee you this. Do I regret that I didn't do this? Did I regret that I didn't do that? Instead of saying, you know what? I'm happy, mistakes and all. This is what I want to do with my life. I, I would like them to see and hear that and understand, particularly young people out there that are looking to struggle in a world that's very, very different today is if you can't make a lot of money, just worry about making yourself happy. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really, really appreciate talking to you. Great. Love Canada. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter where our handle is at Third Down Gamble. Join us again next time. The Third Down Gamble Podcast. Audio. Worth watching.